Hello and welcome to the 50th episode for Journey to the Rise. I am so grateful for those of you who have joined me along the way. This podcast would not be possible without you or our guests. And wow, have we had some incredible people share their story with us over the past 49 episodes. We've talked to a world-renowned marine biologist, relationship coach, nutrition coach, fitness and wellness coach, a hypnotherapist, photographers, authors, and so much more in between. I want to make sure I give a very special thank you to someone because without this person, what this podcast has become would not be possible without her, and that is Terry Decker. I like to call her mom. She's allowed me to use a space in her home to record these podcasts so I can talk to guests without interruption. She's been a big supporter of me and a very big influence on me and has given me much guidance throughout the years, and I am grateful. I thought I would go back over the episodes from the past season, starting with your favorites. The episodes with the most downloads in season one was no other than the delightful Bren McLean. Oh, wow. I grew up on a 72-acre beef and grain farm, beef cattle and grain farm in the upstate of South Carolina, a little town called Anderson. Uh, it, it's, it's not on the map for anybody to know. Uh, well, wait a minute. It's near Clemson, and everybody usually knows the Clemson Tigers, Clemson University Tigers. They've won, you know, some national championships. Yeah. But my little hometown of Anderson is, I don't think anybody would have ever heard of it unless <laughs> they read my book. <laughs> I just have to tell you that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you're trying to put it on the map. That's amazing. And what... uh, Well, you know, you know what I like to say? I like there's never been a complete novel set in Anderson. Wow. So, Lucretia, I like to think of it as kind of being my love letter to my hometown. That oh. feels so good to me. That's absolutely beautiful. I love that so much. Oh, and what was life like for you in this small town? Like, you're on this farm. So were you like a, a typical farm girl running around barefoot? Like, what was life? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Except, you know, I've written this novel that prominently features a cow. So people like to think, oh, Brad, you grew up on that farm and you all had cattle. So I bet you helped your daddy with the cattle. I bet you were at 4-H. No, uh, not in the least bit. My mind really, Lucretia, growing up on the farm, was more about the land. I used to pack a peanut butter sandwich and a canteen of water. And this is beginning at about age three years old now, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I would take a notepad and a pencil, even though I didn't know how to write, uh, we didn't have kindergarten when I was growing up, but nonetheless, I would take this paper and pencil and sustenance and go to the top, the highest place on my daddy's farm, which is in a back pasture. And Lucretia, I would just sit there for hours and hours and hours with this notepad and my thoughts. Just being out in the land is what I really, really, really loved. Now, when did you have this story that, which is very exciting, just celebrate its sixth year being published, come wow. to you? I know. Yeah, Congratulations. One, thank you. Six years. Okay, let me let me put it in perspective before I dive into that specifically, okay? Yeah. So I started writing 
fiction on September 18th, 1988. And yes, I do remember the day. I love I it. Was, I was in co corporate America and I was bored out of my mind. And I picked up a, a again, a pencil and paper and I started writing short stories. And I started noticing that everything I was writing kind of was the same story, kind of was the same thing. So then I decided to write a novel. I wrote a novel. It was called Darby, He Liked Ropes. I, I got a literary agent with that book, but we ultimately didn't sell it. So then I turned to the next book that I was writing. It's a novel called Willie June. And Lucretia, it was based on a secret that a man in Atlanta, Georgia, where I was living at the time, uh, confessed really to me, and this was in June of 1994, I think. Wow. And it was it was on that secret. It was it was inspired by that secret that I wrote the second novel, Willie June. And as I was writing it, I came to know that what I was really writing about was motherhood. I really, really wanted to celebrate mothers. And I think at, at its core, I was actually celebrating my own relationship and my own love of my mother. We were absolutely best friends. And we just were each other's best thing. And I, I don't have any children, but I wanted to celebrate that bond with my mother. So I wrote this novel, Willie June. Well, guess what? My mom died, um, yeah, while I was mm. writing that book. I eventually finished it, but it was a complete and utter mess. Oh. And I had two really good reader friends who both had the courage and, and really enough love for me to say to me, Bran, that's mm -mm. no, girl, that, mm -mm. Really? that book, no, uh-uh. After all of this work, now understand that from 1988 when I began writing fiction, this would have been in 2004, so do the math for me. Oh so that's what, 10 years? Uh, uh, let's see, 10 years? No, 16 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I tried to hone my skill in short stories. I'd written this other novel. I'd gotten an agent. It didn't go anywhere. I wrote this other book. So, you know, the clock's ticking. 16 years now. And I'm having to face the fact that, you know, this one's not going to fly. This one's not going to fly either. Mm. So I put it on the proverbial shelf like I had that other book and got busy about life. And then guess what? Um, I started doing research on actually the novel that I'm writing right now. I, I got to tell you that typically, Lucretia, my stories choose me my yeah. stories find me and my soul was dying I saw there's to it I was wilting on the vine and and so I was so blessed because I had begun doing this training for Bell South executives and um, I call it media training communications training how to talk to reporters how to give speeches those kinds of things and so Lucretia I decided uh, one day uh, actually, after I wrote my obituary, I just, it was one of those days in corporate America, I thought, I can't go on. And so I wrote my obituary, and it said that I was a writer, and it said that I was um, 
uh, a communications consultant. <laughs> and so help me God, so help me God, I turned to my computer and wrote my resignation <gasps> and walked out of Bell South, gave them two weeks' notice, uh, just on a wing and a prayer, actually. And I knew that I had the skill for teaching and for consulting, and I just kind of gave it all to the universe and it gave it right back to me. So I was getting despondent, I'll be honest with you. And I happened to be, again, visiting my daddy, and it was his birthday um, in Anderson. And I'd heard that Pat Conroy's agent, um, a woman named Marley Russoff, was going to give a talk a couple of, a couple of towns over from Anderson about the state of, of book publishing today. And I went, oh, hey, I need to go. So I went. And in this talk she gave, uh, she said, you know, it's hard to get published right now. And this was, girl, this was 10 years ago. It's mm -hmm. hard to get published right now, especially if you write about small towns, especially if it's the South. <laughs> oh, gosh, oh, no. you, know, you know, ding, ding, ding on all of those. And she said, but listen, listen, I don't want you all to get upset because there's a silver lining in all of this. And, of course, my ears perked up like nuts. And she said, the silver lining is um, the rise of the small press. Oh. And, and, and Lucretia, when she said that, my energy totally changed. I could, I could feel this surge up through my body, like, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah. So when she finished, I um, went over to her and I said, you know, thank you very much. Um, could you give me some examples of small presses? And she said, well, my client, Pat Conroy, has just started, just, like, just started his own imprint story, River Books, that's going to be uh, administered by the University of South Carolina Press. And I had read some press on that. I, I that Yeah, I said, yes, I have read that. So, you know, I went back to Anderson, and this was in February. It's about this time. And, you know, got on the website, and I saw that the submission period was uh, beginning June 1st. Okay, so June 1st. And I said, okay, put that in your calendar, Brynn. I want you to submit. Now, in the meantime, in April... In Charleston, I attended a, uh, a writer's conference. And, and actually, I should say not just attended it, I helped organize it. Wow. And so I, I was doing some, you know, moderating some workshops, blah, blah, doing a lot of, you know, that kind of work. And the first day of that conference, this dark-haired man came up to me at the end and said, Bren, I really enjoyed that. I said, oh, thank you very much. And, you know, if you've ever put on a conference or anything, you know, a lot of people are trying to get at you. So I didn't get really to talk to him any more than that. All right. So the very next morning early, I did another workshop. And he, here he comes again. Highly complimentary. Thank you very much, sir. Okay. <laughs> I did another one right before lunch that day. And, yes, you guessed it. Here he comes again. Brand, that was really good. I enjoyed it. <laughs> At this time, I happened to look down his chest at his lanyard. I had not looked at it before. And guess what? This, this was a guy, Jonathan Haupt, who was the director of the University of South Carolina Press. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Now, when after, and then he turned to leave, 
and people were saying, Brand, 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 can you, you know how you are. Yeah. And y'all, this is the only selfish thing I did then, but I just made a beeline. I made a beeline to the room where we were going to have our luncheon and walked in, looked, you know, scoured the room for where this man might be. And guess what? <laughs> the what? seat to his left was empty. And I, I would have probably knocked somebody down to get over to that seat, but I did. And when I sat down, I got down to business. I said, Jonathan, uh, uh, you know, I, I see you're the uh, director of the University of South Carolina Press. I understand that you administer Pat's imprint, blah, blah, yeah, yeah. And also know that your submission period is June 1st. He said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, I have a novel and I'm going to send it to you. He said, well, tell me what it's about. I told him what it's about. He reached in his pocket, pulled out a business card, gave it to me and said, don't wait, send it now. Oh my gosh. And I I knew, and this was like late April. I knew when I sent him my manuscript, I knew that I was stepping in. It it still gets me. (laughs) I knew that I was stepping in to what was set up for me. I knew it. The second most downloaded episode was a recent one, and that was with my guest, Deanna Zarwanka Lamont. Yeah. So what's it like to work? Because that's a small small radio station. What's it, what's it like to work in such a small environment and for a small community? I, you know, it was a fun, I always said it was a good gig. Oh, this mm-hmm. is a good gig. Because again, I worked on a 100% commission. So I was in charge of, um, you know, how, what my outcome was. And Tom is an excellent marketer. So I learned a ton from him and the opportunity with, uh, you know, my coworkers and the community of getting involved. So my territory uh, was just the one town some of the salespeople could go out you know different areas of northwest wisconsin and mine was just rice lake wisconsin and uh so it was really getting to know the business people developing a trust um because i was never a good salesperson i still am not i i dread asking after over 30 years you know (laughs) that was so hard for me but what was easy was having a conversation with people, hearing about their passion for their business, what their needs were, and truly listening. And then I either could come up with a plan that would help their business grow, or I couldn't and be honest about that. So I never really had to sell. And I say that lightly because, yes, we were under the gun to sell. But right. Um, right. I, it, it was more building relationships and trust with my clients. And so then you're, you get to see a different side of business people than you would just you know either walking into their business or seeing them on the street. So that was a huge benefit right. of being in a small town because everybody yeah. wants to you know uh, support one another at the core, you know, is there competition, of course, but um, I think overall, it was an it was a great experience. Although I knew when it was time to leave. Really, and what was yeah. the deciding factor there? Because I mean, that's a long career 
to be dedicated to a company. So what what happened? Mm -hmm. um, it took me about eight years to do the change. For eight <laughs> years, I felt this nudge because my heart was saying something different. And it goes back to, again, being that little girl, like, is this all there is? There was some uneasiness, but I couldn't put my, put my finger on it. So again, I'm asking myself like, gosh, is there, is this all there is? Why do I feel the unease? Because my brain is telling me, Deanna, this is a good gig. It's right. a good gig. Yeah. You can work from home. Um, you know, there are, there are some perks that I'm super grateful for. And um, anyway, <laughs> after doing my own, you know, self work, that's a, you know, lifelong process, and it will continue to be. The more I learn, the less I know. But um, I really got in touch with myself, and it's like I need to make the change because what I have figured out is the universe is always supporting us, always. And you can fill in universe with whatever, um, right. you know, God source. You know. um, I don't mean any specific connotation when I say that. It's just a word I use. So the universe is always supporting us. And we'll get a little nudge, a little tickle, a little tap on the shoulder. You know, like, hmm. you might want to think about, you know, going this direction, turn left instead of going right. And when we don't listen, that little nudge, that little tap becomes a little stronger shove. We still don't listen. It becomes a push. We still don't listen. And it's a <laughs> kick in the pants and <laughs> very uncomfortable. Right. So I had some other things in my life that I experienced that way at that time. And I thought, I need to let go here because really I had no guarantee for an income and I still need an income. Right. So uh, I gave a six month notice after my eight year contemplation of being there 26 <laughs> years total. <laughs> but um, uh, on, on my last day, what I wanted to do was really follow my heart and step into you know, my side business of inspiring wellness for life. Uh, doing healing work and I had all my stuff in storage um, that didn't fit in her house um, since 2011 and now you know here we are at 2015 and uh, there was somebody in Cumberland uh, that said you know our house has been up for sale and uh, we're taking it off the market we're going to Arizona why don't you move in here don't worry, you'll be here through the winter. We're not coming back from Arizona until spring. And I thought, oh, great. And they knew um, uh, that I, at that time, was teaching some classes and doing energy work. And I thought, you know, now, after all these few months, I could get back into that. So I went to my storage shed and loaded everything up, totally staged the house. There happened to be somebody that looked at it two weeks if it sold. And I thought, wow. Oh, no. Somebody else asked, well, you know, my house has been on the market for seven years. Can you, can you help me? Right? And I considered it. But I yeah. actually had a ticket for to go to Abraham Hicks, see Abraham Hicks in Phoenix. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll get back in touch with you when I, when I come back. But I thought, I am not moving this stuff 
I had it in storage, and if you haven't looked at it in five years, you don't even know what you have. You don't need it. And True. there was a lot of emotion and energy with all that stuff because I stuff that I had over two marriages. And um, so I, I got a little carried away. I started to put on Facebook. I'd take a picture, post, take a picture, post. I'll take it, I'll take it, I'll take it. I either sold or gave away everything other than what would fit in maybe a 12 by 12 room. And uh, then my daughter had said, Mom, why don't you just, you don't have to come back. Uh, just get a oh. one-way ticket when you go see Abraham and see what happens. And I thought, oh, my God, I've always been so responsible. Right. That would be irresponsible. But gosh, that sounds really fun. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm getting a one-way ticket. I'm getting a one-way ticket. No so I got a one-way ticket. <laughs> so I go amazing. to Abraham. Yeah, I go to Abraham, and uh, after the uh, the workshop, I knew I was going to stay in Sedona for two nights. Well, I did. That turned into four, which turned into there were some other things that happened, um, just kind of road tripping with my daughter because she joined me. And it took me six months to leave Sedona. And then I wow. went back to us. I forced myself to go back to Wisconsin, and uh, and I was I booked up a, a place for a, a month um, in Sedona. And I thought, if my heart pounds, when I pull into Sedona, I'm staying. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't know where I was going to live. There were some circumstances where I lined something up within a week. It was like, nope, it's no longer available. Everything just kept opening up. And so I had 100, 100% unfallible trust in the process. It's like if your heart says yes, if your heart says go, and your mind is arguing. <laughs> right. That logic follow trying to. Follow the heart. Yes. Yeah. Follow the heart. Follow the heart. Because there are, there are, you know, when we think of how, like how, if right. I was going to plan to move to Sedona, um, I've got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to get there, how I'm going to move my stuff, you know, I, I don't know. And we can maybe think of maybe four tops, seven ways to do anything in life. So not just, you know, moving anything. Well, the universe has... <sighs> you know, a gajillion ways for something right. to happen. So when we think that we can control, like, okay, it's got to happen, it's got to look like this, who are we kidding? The universe, you know, so I might think of option four, seven, and nine, and the universe is saying, oh, no, 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 no. Idea 5,284 is going to get you there the fastest. You're going to have the most fun. It's going to be easy for you. Take that. Coming in third was a yoga instructing mama, Steph Davis. And you had shared on your Instagram uh, post, it was in 2018, you had a dream to share oneness with self, with God, and the world around us. What steps have you taken to share that oneness? That's such a great, such a great question. I, um, I had, uh, clarity around that pretty, 
pretty early on. I think when we still even had our design business that I wanted to do, uh, to focus on, I don't know if it's yoga, but on the concept of yoke, which is what yoga means. And that is alignment, uh, with body, soul, spirit alignment with, for me, at least it's alignment with God. Um, and so pretty soon after I got my yoga license or while I was getting my yoga license, I filled up a whole notebook of just ideas and clarity and insight of what I wanted to do. And I went forth to try to kind of make it happen in that season. And, um, it was when I was pregnant with my second child and I just, it just, there was a sense of peace around the fact, like, it's not time. It's not this isn't, this isn't the time to do that. And so, um, with some sadness and, you know, and peace, I kind of put it to the side and, but that is something that we've just had our third child, um, that I am really interested in kind of rolling out in the next few years. I feel like the podcast, um, spirituality for mamas was a little bit, a little sneak peek of some of the work that I want to do. Um, course that's focused on motherhood but motherhood as a spiritual path motherhood as you know understanding what love is on motherhood as understanding who god is motherhood as aligning with your own body <laughs> i mean hello your own body your own mind your own um sense of uh spirit and love and 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 passion in order to create a family that you really uh, enjoy and have vision for. So that's kind of the motherhood part of that, that I've explored or enjoyed talking to other women about. Um, but yeah, I do see, I do see a future with, um, doing, uh, teaching some of the stuff I've, uh, we've been in yoga class together, teaching yoga, meditation and, and other just e practices to bring ease and alignment uh, into life. This guest continued to pop in and out of the top five all season long, Chris D'Amico. So you get into photography and you've been very successful with your photography where many have struggled and even failed. What do you think is different about you that has brought on your level of success? Um, I, I feel like... There are a lot, I feel like there's a lot of artists out there that are much better at the craft than I am. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit later because that was kind of the whole purpose behind starting this new reactor company. But I feel like I can point a lot of my successes personally and professionally to just trying to be nice, trying to always assume positive intent, trying to, you know, kind of listen more than I speak. Um, you wouldn't guess that from this interview so far, but, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just, I feel like, I feel like there's a, if you can figure out a way to be good to everybody in your life in some way, and it doesn't have to be these crazy things. You don't have to like kill yourself serving people, but if you just be nice to people, I feel like that goes a long way. And I feel like that has opened doors and kept doors open that should probably would have closed otherwise. Um, and then with that, you know, I just, I, I love, I love diving into the details of photography and of image making. 
I'll see something online that I'm inspired by and it's like, okay, why does that look like an illustration? They, they're not doing this technique, which it doesn't look like. They're not doing this technique, so it's got to be retouching. Okay, why are they retouching it that way? You know, and so it's just, I love that kind of level of, of kind of nerdery around the craft. So I think, and I don't, I don't mind, I don't mind pushing that boundary and kind of being like, let's figure out this look, let's do this thing without um, kind of being willing to do it myself. And I feel like that though has come from years of dealing with people that are very cranky about things that are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm like, it's cool. Don't just, just take a breath. Who cares? You know, big deal. Yeah. So I, I feel like those kind of, and that's kind of a circuit. Did I even answer the question? <laughs> I feel like I'm rambling now. <laughs> you are answering the question. Yeah, absolutely. I think kindness goes a long way and your, your intrigue of curiosity of how to capture the image, image, how to make it better, how you can put your own spin on it speaks a lot about you as an intellect and as a creative and by putting people first, you're not, it sounds like you're not so much worried about the bottom line. We all have bills to pay, but it sounds like in your craft, you've been putting people first and then the money has been following right. that path. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something too, that, um, for years, I, I just recently took it off. I've, I've got, I had chief janitor on the bottom of my email signature. Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, Mostly in jest, but kind of not. Right. <laughs> but it's one of the, the idea that, you know, uh, I mean, because, you know, I hire grips to do this and, you know, uh, lighting directors to do that and DPs to run cameras and other photographers to run bays and stylists to do, right? And I, I am a firm believer that regardless of your position on set, everybody's got a role, but I don't think anybody <laughs> should be above something. I feel like, and I, and I'm not saying that you want the, the, the executive producer taking the trash out at the same time, they should be willing to, if that's a need. Right. And yeah. so I feel like there's a, there's a cultural thing that I feel a lot of folks, maybe, I don't know. I don't want to talk. I love anybody. I just feel like if we could all come back to that center and be like, there's nothing. I, I, I like you. I, I love what we're doing. I want the best results. How do we get there collectively? Does that mean I need to take out the trash and I'll take out the trash? You know, right. mm -hmm. I feel like that's the approach. And I feel like that, yeah. that probably has gotten us further than anywhere else. Apparently real estate is a hot topic because the episode with the fifth most downloads was Jenna Hickman. And I love that you're supportive of him and his career. And clearly he's supportive of you, of what you pursue. Yeah. And I think, that's the whole perfect balance to our relationship. Um, as challenging as it is to both be um, in an entrepreneurial state now, me, you know, pursuing real estate, him pursuing music, um, there's no financial security in that, right? We're just taking a lot of risks. But with that, we can support each other. And we really realize, you know, with dreams come a lot of sacrifice and a lot of hard work, but we're both here to be teammates and support the dreams however that looks. Um, so it's very encouraging that we both have each other to lean on and just push each other to the next That's level. Amazing. And when did real estate start to grab your interest? So it's funny looking back because in Florida, actually, I met with an agent down there once. 
because um, I, I transitioned jobs several times in Florida. I went from being an event coordinator to then actually getting personal training certified. I went from events to fitness, and that's where all that started. But in that time, I actually did meet with an agent down there once and just talked about, you know, what is a day in the life of a real estate agent? What does this entail? Um, so I started to think on it, but then I was also at the time where I was starting to think of leaving Florida. So I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. Why would I get a license or consider a license even in Florida if I'm going to leave because you have to have a state license? So now full circle, it's funny that, you know, that curiosity was there in me years back and it really wasn't until 2020 pandemic having happening, losing jobs that I had that moment again, like, you know what, why don't I pursue real estate? We're sitting here, right? We were all at home at that time. I just had another Godwink moment of, well, I could do something with my time here right now while we're at home. I could do real estate school. They're doing it all on Zoom, all yeah. online. So that's actually when I signed up and made value of my time at home. I love that. And what is it about this very stressful process? Because I've heard real estate school is not like... I have a friend who says it's intimidating to him. Um, trying to work with clients is stressful. Um, you're dealing with like ups and downs of changes that happen when people are trying to buy a house, sell a house. What is... It sounds really, really stressful. What is that of interest for you? Truth be told, it can be very, very, very stressful. Um, so a lot of that is just managing the stresses. But I love the people connection, right? So real estate is not HGTV. Love the shows. I watch them almost every night before bed. But that gives a very false perception of the reality of a real estate career. So there's so much more behind the scenes to it. So when I tell people about it, you know, it is a startup business. Like you would start up any entrepreneur journey, any restaurant, any passion that you have, it's a startup business. And what do businesses need? We need clients. So uh, real estate school, yeah, it's, it's tough. Um, and then like most schools, you come out of it and you're like, well, shoot, okay, now how do I be an agent? Right. I don't know. Um, so it really takes a lot of one, aligning with the right brokerage Two, um, I would encourage finding a mentor to really lead you and not be afraid to like ask for the help and the shadowing and all the learning that you can do. And then three, to just not be afraid to put yourself out there, network, let people know you're doing this. You know, you come out of real estate school and feel like, okay, I have no experience. How do I sell myself to people? How are they going to trust me with my, you know, if I've never sold a home before, how do they trust me? Um, and a lot of that is because you have a team behind you, right? We've gone through school. You continue to learn from your brokerage and continuing education um, courses. And so the more you learn and the more you do, the better you become. I was actually surprised to see this one drop out of the top five as it has been in the top five for several months. But six is still pretty amazing. Mandy Farmer. Speaking of your blog, it's beautiful and it gives really great information you. who want to travel as a family. But what I really appreciate about your blog is you also talk about traveling without the kids. Can we chat about mm -hmm. the importance of why you felt you needed this to be addressed? 
Yes, absolutely. This is like my biggest, this was one of my biggest reasons for starting the blog again. Um, I feel that marriage is really hard work. Like everything's hard. Raising kids is hard. Being a dog mom is hard. Working on multiple businesses, it's all hard work and you have to put time into it to make it successful. If you just sat back and never, you know, worked on your copyright, it wouldn't go anywhere. Like we were talking about earlier, you have to make the steps. So for marriage, I think it's key to spend time with that person to make sure you don't wake up, you know, when you're empty nesters and you don't like each other anymore because you haven't put any time in together. You know, you focused it all on the kids. Yeah. So there was a time back when our babies were little bitty babies, our, our oldest, I call them our bigs. So our bigs were very little. Um, my mother-in-law flew over from the States to Australia and stayed with us and sent us away on a weekend away to the other side of Australia, to Perth. So we were on the east side, she sent us, well she didn't tell us where to go, but we were like, let's go to Perth. So we flew the other side of the, the country to Perth and um, just spent a weekend connecting. We got couples massages, we went on all the dates, we did on some, we went on some tours. We just had fun together and it, we hadn't, like it was so refreshing because number one, I didn't really want to go on the trip with him. Like I said, we were not in a good place and I was just like anything to like not have to change a diaper or, you know, have my name, mommy said like, I'm, let's go. So <laughs> that quickly turned to like, okay, this is great. Like we're having some conversation. I feel like we were just living like uh, roommates, raising these kids together. So that weekend was like, I say it saved my marriage. It really did. Um, and so, and hats off to my amazing mother-in-law who came over, made us go, like, told us you have to do this. Um, I just, I'm so grateful for her. So while we were on that trip, we loved it so much. We're like, okay, let's do this every year, once a year. Let's make a promise. Um, if we can't go away for, you know, a week, let's do a weekend. If we can't do a weekend, let's do a night. Just one one thing we can, you know, look forward to, one thing that is just going to be us, that the kids aren't needing our attention, we're having adult conversation, we don't have to take a stroller, or, you know, worry about nap times, schedule, um, where it's just us. And so that, like I said, saved our marriage, <laughs> and because it was such a saving grace for us, I realized, like, okay, maybe more people need to hear this. Maybe it would help somebody else if I start blogging and sharing about our story and just the trips that we take. And I hope it doesn't ever come across to people that come across my blog or my content like, we get to go do all these trips. Cause it's not like that. Like it's, like I said, it's hard and you have to put in the time and it's not, you know, bragging. It's like, hey, you can do this too. Like you can take, if you can't take a weekend, take a night and go, you know, in your local town to whatever hotel or whatever, you know, swap houses, have someone come stay. It doesn't have to be a grandparent if you're not in your family. Have a friend come stay and you go stay at their house without kids. Like just some time to connect. Um, I think it can be done. We did it in Australia um, and had no, you know, no family there. So for like the years after when my mother-in-law wasn't there, we had friends help us out um, just to be able to have that time. So you can make it work if you're if you have a support system close or don't, you can figure it out how to make it work. <laughs> and it's important. All the way from Thailand, 7th brings you Eric Prince. Where I wasn't able to go to law school and I was encouraged to pursue my passion of photography and exploration and just getting out there. Um, I ended up buying a one-way ticket to London and I've been on the road ever since. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. What was your major? That was in 11 college? years ago. I was a, 
11 years ago. Uh, triple major, government, uh, government, history, English with a minor in RTF, radio, television, and film. Wow, that's impressive. When did you start your blog? That was uh, 2012, 2012. Okay. Where you just and it was actually, it. it was totally by accident. I never even, oh, so yeah, so the, the blog thing wasn't, it was an accident. Um, I didn't even understand the whole concept of blogging for a living or like, like this is early days. Like now it's so common, but back then there were no professional travel bloggers back then. There was really... I was just doing it for fun because I started a small nonprofit uh, foundation in high school uh, called a World Beyond Youth Exploration, where the goal was to get inner city kids abroad with a camera in their hand and show them the world. Because those are the things, exploring the world in the military and using photography as my medium to show the world what I saw uh, was my way of, of, of escaping, so to speak. So I wanted to give that uh, same experience to low-income kids uh, from where I grew up, you know, kids who grew up in a space of being invisible. You know, we're raised in, a, in, in if you're young and black in Cleveland in the 90s, you, know, you were invisible unless you were committing a crime. So I want to give these kids a, a creative outlet because I understand that everybody can't be a professional athlete, everybody can't be a musician, but photography is one of those mediums that anybody can really learn. What kind of challenges did you face when you started pursuing being a travel journalist? Honestly, I didn't even pursue it. It just kind of happened. It, wow. I, I really, and, and you know, I, I, I rail against this idea, this tokenization of uh, people of color, of diversity. Um, I, I spoke a little bit about this recently in a video, is that the travel industry is, is hypocritical. Uh, the travel industry pretends it cares about diversity, but it doesn't unless they can make money from it, which is why you generally only see any kind of diversity during Black History Month in terms of people of color or it's gay pride um, month or time that you see LGBTQIA communities. Like you're only starting to see uh, disabled travelers uh, or plus size travelers in the media. Why? Because they can make money from it. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit frustrating uh, because for me, I look back at when I first started and I'm like, my God, if I knew then what I know now about budgets, about representation, about access, I would have gone about my career significantly more intentionally and I would have charged a lot more. <laughs> right. So, you know, with that, my biggest thing is humans helping humans and us trying to leave a legacy you know i close out every video on youtube leave the world better than you found it and people constantly complain spend so much time bitching and moaning about how bad social media is and how bad the governments are and how i'm like yo i don't have time for that yo i'm just trying to make it better just a little bit better like point zero 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 point one percent better than i found it and it, it was a funny thing one of my goals, people always ask me why I smile so much and why I'm so happy. It, it, and trust me, if you see me frown or angry, run, because it's, it's a problem. <laughs> I, I try to make somebody smile or laugh every single day that I'm out that I don't know. Now, imagine what the world would be like if everybody did that. If you just tried to make somebody smile or laugh that you don't know. 
I don't care where in the world you are or where you're from. If you move through the world with positivity, that ripple effect is powerful. Life is really rough. You know, I know anybody who's listening to this, like, oh, Eric, it's easy for you to say because you're living a dream, blah, blah, blah. Yo, I was in war. Two wars, five, five tours of duty. Trust me, I know pain and suffering and conflict and negative side. I grew up in East Cleveland in the 80s and 90s. I'm very well aware of how rough life is and can be. But if you step back out of this chaos that we have as adults now, out of this ego that we've built up around ourselves, making ourselves the center of the universe and by proxy where we're from the center of the universe, we start to see how small we truly are. We, we start to see how limited our time is here. And we start to appreciate the little things. Who doesn't love a world-renowned marine biologist? You all certainly did. Thomas Iliff. Quite the adventure. And speaking of adventure, I read that you led a team of nine d other divers and you descended 462 feet into Phantom Springs Cave in West Texas, making it the deepest underwater cave dive ever in the U.S. How do you, first of all, how do you plan for this? You were just explaining you need to plan a third of your oxygen in, a third out, a third from an emergency. So now I'm assuming you're planning extra gas that you're taking with you. Like, did you suspect this passage would go? And it's not like dropping into a vertical cave and bouncing back up. Like, take me down the journey of this accomplishment. This is fascinating. Okay, so the story is that I'd heard about this cave and other people had been exploring it. And they explored a mile into the cave, but it was basically a horizontal tunnel at relatively shallow depths, anywhere from 30 feet or less down to about 80 feet maximum depth. So it was kind of moving along up and down but never going down very much. And this other team of divers got a mile into the cave and that was about as far as they could go with the equipment and the technology they had at that time. Sure. So that was basically, the cave was still continuing. It was just that they weren't able to go any further than a mile in. So I thought, well, I've got some friends who were again, world expert cave divers, uh, and I invited them to come over from Florida. I got, uh, the cave is actually owned by the federal government, by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. So I had to apply and get a permit from them, and it was very difficult to get a permit from them. So it took me about a year or more to apply to finally get a permit. So wow. um, after great difficulty, I got a research permit to go in there and allow us to go diving. And so the first year we go over, um, we go out into the desert in West Texas in December, I think, or January, middle of winter, we go out there and we get out there and it starts snowing. What? So here we are in the desert. In, in Texas, and it's snowing. <laughs> so we drive out on these ranch roads to get out to 
this spring and this iron gated bars over the entrance of it. Um, so we start diving there and we're using, our team is using closed circuit rebreathers. So this is a device that recycles your gas when you exhale. With normal scuba diving, when you exhale, there's a stream of bubbles that come up for the water. Uh, and when you inhale again, it's out of your tanks. So every time you exhale, you're losing all the gas that you've got out of your tanks. With a closed circuit rebreather, when you take a breath and exhale it, it goes through a carbon dioxide scrubber that removes the carbon dioxide out of your exhaled gas. You put in a small amount of pure oxygen, 100% oxygen in tiny amounts, and you breathe in that same gas mixture again. So you're breathing it over and over again, just going around in a big loop, recirculating it, and there are no bubbles. So oh, wow. you can stay down much longer. You can have very small little tanks. And basically, with my small little tanks that I have, which are about one third the size of a normal scuba tank, I can stay down as much as eight to 10 hours at any depth. Holy so it's cow. not depth dependent. With normal scuba diving, the deeper you go, the shorter you can stay. With a rebreather, doesn't matter how deep you are, except for the decompression you're gonna have to do at the end of the dive. But as far as gas staying down, um, it doesn't matter because you're only using this tiny little bit of oxygen that's out of your small scuba tank. Great. So, we were using these closed circuit rebreathers, but we anticipated the cave was gonna stay at the same depth, 30 to 80 feet or so. Mm -hmm. So we have gas supply and everything set up for diving in reasonably shallow depths. So we send a team out, we have an explore, exploration team, they go out and they get a mile into the cave they reach the end of the guideline, the exploratory guideline of the other divers. They tie in a new guideline and they start exploring. And almost immediately, the cave starts dipping, stair-stepping down. Whoa. And they get down to a depth of about 190 feet. And they can look down this huge underwater shaft and it looks like it's going to 250 or 300 feet or more, but they don't have the proper gas mixtures to be able to go down that deep. So this was all on their very first dive in the cave. And oh so they God. came back out and they can't go any further. That's as far as they can go. So um, we, organized another expedition a year later, and this time they come out with gas mixtures that allow them to go much deeper. And so this time they go down to the 460 odd feet and the 
tunnel is still going on, and they have little scooters that are pulling them along like uh, torpedo-like devices that yeah. the divers are holding on that are towing them through the water. And one of the scooters, torpedo-like devices, implodes <gasps> from the, from the water pressure. It just gets crushed. Because Holy the water pressure is so high at that depth. Oh, my god! Fortunately, the other diver, uh, they were able to hold on to one another and use the remaining torpedo uh, scooter to pull them out of the cave. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so that's where they had to stop in the cave. The deeper they went and the further into the cave they went, the larger and larger the tunnel was getting. So oh, they gosh. were nowhere near the end of the cave, but because of the depth and the fact that they're already a mile into the cave. In most caves, in deep caves, it's right at the entrance. So you enter the cave and you immediately go straight down. This cave, you enter the water, you swim a mile in, and then you go down. So it's considerably more complicated because sure. you do your decompression a mile into the cave, and then you have to swim a mile out of the cave going up and down and up and down to get out. When you want inspiration, who is better to bring you up than an author and motivational speaker, Teresa Folly Betts? Yeah, what's the classroom of life? T tell me about it. <laughs> okay. The classroom of life, when I say that, I'm saying that every day that we wake up, we're in the classroom of life. We're going to be tested, okay? We're going to be filled with different things. And that's why it's so important that you watch what you feed your mind and what you feed your spirit and I believe that the classroom, when you get the test, is not to hurt you, but it's to help you to grow. And I feel like daily I'm being tested because situations come up and I have to sometimes stop and think before I respond, rather than just my first initial response is to say this, I have to think about it and say, is this the right thing at this time? So it's about the test and the test, we don't realize the test is just to help us become better. It's not to, and there will be times you're gonna fail that test, but guess what? You still can't give up. You have to come back the next day and let's say, let's do this again. Just about everyone loves plants, and you clearly all love plant savvy. Savannah Toll. Because at the end of the day, I'm the only person that will really be there for myself, you know? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was absolutely. Really, yeah, I was like trying to find different avenues, and that's why I started a plant blog. Because I was like, oh, nice. I can write. Yeah, I was like, I could write about like my passions, and this can be an outlet for me doing this. So I've I started it and I created the whole website by myself and I I had my friend do my logo and she was actually, she talked me into starting posting on TikTok. She was like, you got to post on TikTok. And I was like, 
I don't know about <laughs> I don't know about all that. I don't know. But I ended up posting on TikTok and it, you know, some of my videos started blowing up and I started gaining a following and I was like, I could do this. Like I could really do this. And then just kind of spiraled from there, I guess. Wow. And you're like, I want to write about, I hear that so often people start a blog and it launches a career books, like, like yeah. a, a business. So I love that. You're like, I'm just going to blog about yeah. this. So what was your initial blog all about? If you're sitting there, it was like all about plants. So I was like, I was so, such so anal about it. I was like, I, I just want to make sure that everything's right. So I need to have ten blogs already written. I need to have all this stuff already written before I launch. And yeah. I sent the website out to all of my friends and was like, Look at this. Tell me what you think about it. I was very because I was also nervous that. I would explain like I explained it to my partner and I explained it to my sister and like my family and I said I I don't I'm not gonna be like the other bloggers because you know like I felt like at the time blogging was very much so I don't know because almost influencer like how people talk about influencers now and it's like oh god you know what I mean and I just was like I just didn't want to be I was like I don't know I just want to write about this so it's gonna be cool you know yeah so I just wrote about, um, you know, I did plant profiles and nice. I talked about like beginner plants and specific plants I wanted to talk about. It was all plant related and like gift guides and that kind of stuff. It was very, I don't know, I really enjoyed it. And I still, I'm starting to get back into blogging because I, I kind of, once, you know, the full business really launched I just kind of got busy and stopped blogging yeah so I'm trying to get back into it now but a man who's standing up with a lot of pride zombie Dan that's amazing and that group has grown if I understand correctly you have like different like different people have started their own and there's like regions like it's expanded beyond just what you started is that correct <coughs> Um, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's insane, really. <laughs> um, people ask me all the time, did you ever expect this? No. Like, I remember thinking, I told a friend, if we get a thousand people in this group, I'll be happy, you know. Um, within 24 hours, we had a thousand members wow. of the original group. <clears throat> so Stand In Pride International is the original group, and we are sitting at 48,000 members right now. That's amazing. And back in September, we, um, I started regional groups for the United States. So I have a total of six groups that I admin with help. I don't do all this myself. Um, but there, someone asked, there are other groups for countries that people have reached out and asked if I would mind if they use the name to start a group for their country. So there's Canada, Australia, Europe. Um, a German language group because I keep saying Germany and people are like, well, Germany's in Europe. Yes, I know, but it's a German language <laughs> group. Um, <laughs> and I had someone from Switzerland reach out um, and South Africa, and they're working on building a team to, to moderate the groups. So yeah, it's great. Like I never expected that. The last count I had, there were close to 90,000 members worldwide. And all the oh groups. my gosh. And can we ever get enough info about Moss? I don't think so. Paul Moore. And 
it's your interest and knowledge of moss has become more of a focus. Yes, it has. And, and quite by accident, uh, about five years ago, I'll kind of preface it with this about five years ago, I took a, a, a personal commitment to go as deep as I could into the things I love related to nature to really take it next level. So I, I began this, uh, reading like crazy, uh, you know, reading book after book after book, uh, doing lots of research, talking to people throughout the industry and, and, uh, you know, really trying to just deepen my, my, my love and knowledge of plants. And then, um, and then at one point, you know, I was kind of evaluating my garden at home and it was basically all native plants, just a few odds and ends that weren't. And I had this grass lawn and this grass lawn was requiring more maintenance than anything else I was doing. And I'm like, you know, even though I was using organic, you know, fertilizers on, I said, there's just got to be a better way. So, you know, one fall, which is the time that you would normally sow new grass seed, you know, I had this one area in the, in the grass lawn. I said, you know, I'm not going to sow any grass seed. And most of the area of the grass was dead or dying anyway. So I just said, I'm not going to do anything, which is hard for a gardener to do. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> there, you know, we want to manipulate everything. So I decided to do nothing other than I did notice in this one area, there was a patch of moss. And I said, well, I wonder what happened if I just let that moss grow. And uh, so what I did that, that winter is I kept all that debris off of it and pulled up what little dead and dying grass that was in there. And so I just, I just observed, I watched. And then by that spring, I noticed that this green haze had formed over where this bare soil was. There wasn't going on, but I knew something was changing and happening. And this original patch of moss had gotten bigger. And by, you know, the next year, it was really starting to fill in. And by the following year, it was all moss. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is cool. And so I, I posted some photos on House Magazine and started sharing some photos of that and then eventually converted the rest of my lawn over to moss. And the next thing I know, it's created this, this craze. The people are just, like, loving it. And uh, Garden Design Magazine came out and ended up doing a feature on it. Southern Living Magazine came out and did a feature on it. Uh, Wall Street Journal interviewed me two years ago about it, and it used one of my photographs uh, and, and included in the interview. And now I lecture about moss, and <laughs> people want to know all about it. And, of course, I can, I can guarantee you I can bring it up in just about any conversation. I love it. I love it. So, um, Moss is my, you know, I tell people I'm a moss evangelist now. So. <laughs> and I believe, if I remember correctly, there is a particular coffee shop that when you walk in, there's chance of moss man, moss man, moss man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Frothy Monkey are in town. I got lots of friends over there. And a lot of times I'll wear my, my T-shirt uh, and it says moss man or oh, can you see this? <gasps> yes! The moss movement. The moss movement. It's slow. <laughs> Here's a woman who brightens every room with her beautiful spirit and vibrant pieces of art, Grace and Toll. So I guess when you're sharing and when you're posting art, even just making art for yourself that doesn't get shared, it is a like 
battle against inside in here. It's a battle against your own mind, but I think me having to overcome public perception and people's views of how I'm acting on social media, what I'm posting, what I'm painting, allows me to be just trust in myself and kind of like remove the, the cringy label or like, you know what I mean? Like sometimes you feel you get too much in your head about what other people are thinking and I feel like throughout the journey of me on this account it's like shown itself in other areas of my life that don't even have to do with social media but it's just trusting that I really shouldn't care what anyone thinks and I feel like that's what this running this account and showing my art has really done for me as a person is like full confidence because at the end of the day it doesn't matter what anyone thinks and you can post and do whatever you want on your own page, you know? You all love this man, not only on the audio broadcast, but also on YouTube as he has been the most watched episode on YouTube. BJ Homesteader. When we started off with poultry, uh, like everything, you're not going to be perfect. It's hit and miss. Uh, Years ago, Lisa and I, um, we knew that uh, we wanted to go ahead and look into the poultry. Um, of course, what breeds, um, how we were going to start that. I've got pictures from when we started way back. Um, and some things when you start out, they're just not pretty. But at, when you look back now, our operation now is incredible. Um, but that really is, is um, overwhelming. And it's really uh, heartfelt. When you look back on the pictures when you first started, you, you, you see things that really uh, that uh, resonate to what you're doing today. Thank you so much for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening and joining every time an episode drops. If you know someone you think would make a good guest, please send me a DM on Instagram. I am currently scheduling guests for season two and would love your suggestions. Thank you so much for being here. And please remember to be kind to yourself as you cannot hate yourself into a version you love. We will see you in season two. I'm Lucretia and you've been listening to Journey to the Rise.